Uh, thank you, Jono. Uh, if you've got a copy of these, keep it open or your Bibles. Um, John's handing out some more. Uh, fairly, how would we say? Graphic? <laughs> Graphic passage we're looking at tonight. Um, and we're meant to enjoy it. It's meant to be a satire. It's meant to be a comic relief. Uh, it's exaggerated on purpose. There's a bit where the dagger bit, that's in slow motion. That's kind of, we're meant to enjoy it. So you can laugh, but if it's just really disgusting and you don't like to laugh, well, don't laugh, okay? Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Father God, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity we have to study judges. Uh, Father God, help us to concentrate on your word and we ask your spirit that he would work in us and give us understanding and help me to preach according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to tell you a story about a man that I met. His name was Ian. Uh, Ian was an exchange university student from the United States. I met Ian while I was doing a, an apprenticeship at the best university, La Trobe University. Sorry, sorry. Should I say the best Christian union? No, I shouldn't say that either. Sorry. Okay, so I'm a bit biased. I became a Christian at La Trobe. Anyway, Ian, he didn't have social skills. He was a bit lacking. I found it really hard to have a conversation with him. And at La Trobe CU, we spent a lot of time reaching out to students. And one of the most common ways, um, this area where you have eating, you go and talk to people and ask them what they think about Jesus. And we call it cold turkey evangelism. Uh, what do you, you call it? Walk up, walk up evangelism here. Uh, during my traineeship, I would spend a lot of time with students, just showing them how to do this. And a co-worker said I should take Ian out, and I thought, really? All right. I was thinking, how is Ian, who can't even talk to me, going to talk to complete strangers? How is he going to talk about Jesus? The day arrived. I explained the plan of attack, and we prayed. But I have to admit, I wasn't confident. I thought our time was going to be a complete disaster for Ian, for those he talked to. But God humbled me that next hour. The first bloke we approached, he was happy to have a chat and we had a really good discussion. After about 10 minutes into the conversation, Ian said a really good point. And then later, a few more. Normally, in one hour, you might approach or walk up to like 30 people and you might get one, maybe two people that are willing to talk about God. Every person we went and spoke to was happy to talk about God. And Ian was soon talking to people by himself. And later we saw a couple that he was in residential college with, and I thought, I wonder how we go, and he explained what we were doing. And then a couple of weeks later, I found out that Ian was going to his Bible study regularly, every week, and he started inviting people. Now, what happened? God humbled me. He humbled me in my bad assumptions. Uh, Ian is a great example of how God can use the most unlikely people. Now, tonight's passage, it's all about deliverance. It's not about a superman with superpowers uh, beating up a whole bunch of baddies. It's about God using a weak person to deliver his people. Now, if you're joining us tonight and you don't know much 
um, what we're going through in Judges. Let's just do a recap. Okay, the book of Judges, Old Testament, between Joshua and Ruth. And it's between the death of Joshua and God's leader who led God's people into the promised land. They have the promised land. They had one job, but they failed. They failed to remove the people in the land. And Judges 1.21 explains that Benjaminites did not remove the Persites. Um, and it wasn't because they were unable. It was because that they focused on their ability rather than focusing on God's ability. And this meant that they had to live with these other people on all sides. And last week we looked at Judges 2 and explained the context of Judges, the book of Judges. By Israel not removing the other nations, they've broken a covenant with God and that their enemies would be um, a pain in their side and their gods would be a snare. But God would use these other nations to test them. And then there's this, this cycle we call the Judges cycle, recurring cycle, explained in chapter 2, verses 11 and 19. So I've got the words, um, and the first... So, oh, sorry, sorry, Laurie, go back. So this is the cycle. So we've got rejection, reaction, retribution, repentance, rescue, relapse. So I've got this uh, from visual art units. Um, and so the first one, rejection, we'll go to chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So that's the first step. There's rejection. God will not tolerate people rejecting him. He is a jealous God, and so stage two, he responds with righteous anger. Stage three is retribution, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their, of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, and the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress." The very people that they would not remove, the very people they were becoming like, God uses to attack them. Why? To humble them, to get his people to repent. Stage four, Israel repents and cries out for mercy. The Lord hears their cries and he's moved by their pain. And so he rescues them. He provides a judge to deliver them from their enemies. Now we think of judge... Hopefully you don't think of Judge Judy, because that'd just be a waste of time thinking about that show. We're not thinking about the legal judges that wear the funny wigs. We're thinking about judges that were like military leaders. They were like charismatic military leaders who were able to deliver God's people from foreign nations. And they would lead God's people in a variety of ways. And as long as they were living, there was peace. But the relapse, once the judge died, the people went bad again. But not just bad, they went worse. And this is spiral going bad and bad and bad. And we're going to see this cycle with Ehud. But the first one we have is Othniel. How do you say his name? Othniel, thank you. He's the first judge. And he's made of the right stuff. He's got everything going for him. He's related uh, to Caleb. He's got the right connections, the right character. But we're not told much about him. 
His enemy was bad. His name literally means Kushan, the doubly wicked. But you see, the account we have of him, just at the top, it's almost like the cycle and just filling the gaps, just put in the names. The important thing is to see that the Lord is the one who delivers his people. And again, there is rest, but then he dies. And what happens? Verse 12, again, we start the cycle again. Then the children of Israel, or the people of Israel, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We're not told, but we know it's idolatry and marrying the other nations. And as a result, God provides punishment. This method of punishment is to strengthen King Eglon of Moab. Now, the Israelites didn't think the Moabites were much of a threat. Exodus 15 and Numbers 22 explained that how scared the Moabites were of the Israelites. But here, God is using a weaker nation to punish his own. He, he creates an alliance with the Amorites and the Mechelites and he attacks the Israelites. And he defeats Israel and he moves into Jericho. You remember that fortified city? And it's quite a strategic position. He can control the whole region. He's not controlling the whole land, but around this region. And 18 years, he rules powerfully and God's people are suffering. It takes 18 years for them to finally cry out to the Lord. Now, they've been suffering. They've been going going without. Now, as I said, this is a satire. It's meant to be funny. It's written so that the Israelites can enjoy the downfall of their enemy. Okay, so what does the Lord do? He provides a most unlikely deliverer. Ehud, son of Gerah, a Benjamite. Now, the tribe of Benjamin were one of the weakest. You know, it's like they were from the worst place. And so a local way, I'm from the town of Ararat. That's where I was born. Most people would say Ararat. Can anything good come from Ararat? What's the way saying Ballarat, isn't it? Oh, yeah, no one wants to admit it. All right, so Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, can anything good come from that? And so here you have someone from the tribe of Benjamin, the least likely to produce a judge. And he's described as a left-handed man. Now, we're not sure if his right hand is deformed, if he's got a disability and he can't use his right hand, or if he might just be a lefty. Because back in those times, most people were right-handed. But the thing about it was, this enabled him to be one of the people that can take a tribute to the king. They're suppressed, they've got to appease their king, they take this tribute, and Ehud, he's no threat. He favours his left. And they send a gift, and it shows that they're submitting to Eglon as their king, and it's obviously food because they haven't got anything else left after 18 years. And it's a lot of food because this guy can put it away. And there's a number of them taking it. Now look at verse 16. He makes a dagger. This is purpose-built. Two-edged, so it will be able to use with lethal force. 45 centimetres long. The handle is short 
and he can hide it. Now, back in the day, if you were right-handed, you would keep your sword on your left leg. You would hide it there, so if you come to battle, whoosh, away you go. But the fact that Ehud is left-handed means he's hiding it on his right side. And probably the bodyguards, if they did search him, they probably didn't because he's looking like pretty weak, pretty pathetic, they would only check his left thigh, not his right. And we see here that Eglong is called very fat. And also in 29, his troops, what are, we, what are they called? They're called all strong and able-bodied men. And also, that's a very polite way of saying it. You could actually say the Hebrew, it could also mean stout, fat. Okay? And so Eglong's actually a play on words. This wasn't his real name. It sounded very similar to the Hebrew word for car. So obviously the writers wanting their readers to read that this guy, he's a fat calf fit for slaughter. But there's a sacrificial theme going on. In verse 18, Ehud sends the attendants home. They've given the tribute and he goes to the idols at Gilgal. Then he returns back to Jericho to convince the king he has a message. Now, verse 19, he addresses Eglon as O King. And so, obviously, through giving the tribute, you know, you give a lot of food to this guy, he's going to be happy with you because he likes a lot of food. And maybe he's built a bit of trust. Or maybe it's just because he's left-handed, a bit of a weakling. He's not really a care. Or maybe it's because he's come back from the idols. Whatever the thing, the king thinks this guy is no threat. He sends his attendants out. Now, the words, the cool roof chamber, that's one version, although these two words in Hebrew we don't really know. Could be the roof over the beams, it could be the toilet chamber. I think toilet chamber is probably the better use. And so he arises from his seat, but he's not in horror for seeing, it's he wants to hear this special message. And in order to understand, which is the dynamics, right? Let's think of the, the toilet chamber as the stage. That's where the King Eglon is. The hall is where all the attendants are. And then he sends them out into, say, like the hallway. And then the door is shut. And so Ehud can enter the, the king's private room and he says something that's very deceptive. He says, I have a message for you. Now, this word can mean a word message or a thing. He has no idea that it's a thing and a very sharp, pointy thing at that. And he uses the word God. He doesn't say the Lord or Yahweh. He says God. So Eglon thinks, ah, you've been to the idols. You've got a secret message from my gods. Eglon's ignorance allows him to come close where you normally can't come that close to a king. Unlike a fattened calf that has no idea what's about to happen to it, the big fat king rises, opens himself up, and Ehud reaches down, thrusts the sword in, in the most vulnerable of spots, thrusts it in with great force, and lets the sword get enveloped in the fat. Now, the word for fat is also the same word in the juiciest parts of the sacrifice in Leviticus 3 and 6. So you can see this whole sacrificial thing. 
Such is the force that there's no time for crying. And such is the amount of fat that the sword is lost. It's the perfect concealment for such a deadly weapon. And the big fat king falls on the ground. There is no sword coming out. What came out? Done. Done comes out. And this just lifts the humour because all the attendants are thinking, oh, he must be relieving himself and they can smell it. And they're probably used to him and his smells and they think, well, he's just on the throne, his own personal throne. And they don't. And then Ehud locks the door to make it seem even more like he's relieving himself. And the text doesn't say it. How does he get out? He probably gets out via the latrine because he's locked the door. He can't go past the attendants. But don't worry too much about that. They're waiting for their king to come out. He's taking a bit longer than usual. We'll give him a bit more space. And eventually they go and check, but it's too late. The mighty King Edlon is a heap in the mess, in his own mess. And they don't even know what's killed him. That gives Ehud heaps of time to run, to blow the trumpet, to rally the troops declares they have victory, and then when word gets out that the king is dead, they're terrified, and the Moabites trying to escape. And again, because they're chubby soldiers that have been taking it easy, not training, they can't run very fast and lambs to the slaughter. Now, what is this all about? Well, it's about... Well, it's a bit embarrassing, isn't it, really? For some of us, it's probably a bit rude and crude, and others you might be thinking, why would God use such a deceitful assassin? Now, the main point, and let's not lose sight of the main point, is the Lord is saving his wicked people. God is graciously rescuing his people that don't deserve to be saved, but he's doing it in the most unlikely way. Ehad is weak, he's pathetic, he's a nobody. Eglong is the big, massive, strong king who's unbeatable. So we move to our second Bible reading, Corinthians chapter 1. God uses the weak to shame the strong. Reading from verse 26, the last paragraph. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now think about Ehad, weak and pathetic. Eglon, he's a king, he's of noble birth. But both are there because of God. God chooses the weak, the lonely, the Benjamite, the left-handed, so that no one could boast. No one could say, oh, Ehud's just such a remarkable, strong warrior. No, he's not. It was clear that God gave the victory. Ehud, he didn't do it in an honourable way, quite dodgy, quite deceptive, but he trusted in the Lord, and it was God's grace that saved Israel from the Moabites. It wasn't his cleverness or his deception. 
What does Ehud do for us? Well, he points us to the ultimate judge. He points us to Jesus. Jesus, like Ehud, had to face his enemy on his own. Ehud did it by himself. Jesus faced his enemies alone. And Jesus, like Ehud, rescued God's people in the most unlikely of ways. He did it by dying on a Roman cross. And Jesus, like Ehud, rescues God's people through weakness. That's the thing about this passage. is often people think that God is this, you know, all beautiful thing. Um, he's up on the cloud. But the God of the Bible, he gets involved in life. He gets involved with the mess of life, even with wicked people. God's plans can't be limited or affected or even determined by humans. He's sovereign above. It was God who strengthened Eglon to come and defeat his people and God who raised up Ehud and allowed him to kill Eglon. Just like it is God who gave us Jesus. Jesus is our judge, our deliverer, our saviour. Now let's remind you again of Ian, the guy I was talking to you about at the start. In my mind, Ian wasn't a good evangelist. He wasn't even able to talk well, but God used Ian to do what I thought was impossible. So let me ask, are there people you consider weak? God can work through them. Do you consider yourself weak? God can work through you. Actually, when we're at our weakest, God is at his greatest. And you might have noticed that it's often God will use those that are weak, that are foolish, that in a worldly sense aren't there. I'll push you a bit further Do you use your weaknesses as an excuse? Do you focus too much on your weaknesses? Oh, I couldn't do it. I've got this. I'm no good at that. Well, it's because of, of, well, really garbage. It's not about me, myself and I. It's about Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We need to focus on God and what he can do. Not on what we can do. But it doesn't matter how strong or how weak you think you are or how big or small the problems are, what matters is God. Now, life isn't fair. For most of us, life is a struggle. It's not an easy walk in the park. But no matter what happens in life, we have hope. We have hope not because of how we feel, not because of our ability. We have hope because of Jesus. We have hope because we know that Jesus will help us get us through. That God will deliver us. Now, we don't have a a big chubby king, Eglon, who's our problem, right? But we have problems. We have challenges. God used Ehud, a weak person... And God will use often the last person you expect. God used a saviour that died on a cross 
to save the world. And God may use the last person you expect to help you this week. It is by God's grace. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much uh, for this passage. And although it can be funny, it can be confronting, it's a great reminder of how you work through people. We thank you, Lord, that you get involved in the mess of life. We thank you that you, although holy, although perfect, are gracious and powerful. Father God, we are sorry for the times in which we've written people off that we have wrongly put them in a place where we think, well, they can't do it or they're no good or that's a waste of time trying to get them. Father God, help us to see people not as we see them but as Jesus sees them. And thank you, Father, that Jesus called the most unlikely of disciples 12 uneducated country blokes, some fishermen, some religious extremists, some tax collectors, and yet use them to grow and establish your church. Father God, we know that by ourselves we are nothing, and so we ask you, Use us here at Cafe Church. Help us as your people not to be taking stock of how we feel or what we can do, but to look at you and who you are and what you do. Father God, thank you that you use weak people like us and help us to be gracious to other people and to see that you can use them. And we thank you that you continually do that through the generations. And we thank you so much for Jesus, who gives us victory and will deliver us through all that we face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.